Thank you for downloading this message from Grace Christian Fellowship. We pray that you receive encouragement from the study of God's Holy Word and that you will grow in the faith and understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, hello, everybody. Happy Resurrection Day. Thank you to the worship team for starting us off and getting us in a frame of worship and an attitude of worship. But this is a special day for us. Not only is it a chance for us to connect virtually, but it's also a chance for us to remember the risen Lord, the risen Savior, the risen Jesus. So this is a particularly special time. And and I know it's a little bit of a challenge uh, to not be together on this day. And I would love to see everybody. and, And I know that a number of you have expressed those same sentiments to me about being together and wanting to see each other on this day. But that's all right. The Lord is with us. And we have very much to reflect on this day, whether we're together or whether in our homes or whatever we're doing. So here we are on this Resurrection Sunday. And how can we not talk about the resurrection, right? But I was thinking as I was preparing for this message, I started to think about all of the steps leading up to the actual crucifixion itself and how dynamic of an event it was. The resurrection certainly is the crowning achievement, but just the arrest and the the walking away of Jesus leads us to very, very many thoughts and and, uh, understandings and perspectives from the scripture. And so I just want to go over a few of them to start us off. For example, from John's account in John chapter 18, uh, we know that as Judas and the officers and the soldiers from the high priest and all that gaggle of people were coming to capture and arrest Jesus, um, they show up around the corner or however they entered the scene, and they say, you know, Jesus uh, said, he spoke out to them, uh, who are you seeking? And they said, you know, they basically acknowledge him, and he said in a response, I am he. And we know when that happened, they flew up and back, just at those words, I am he, that group, Judas and that gang of, of people who were there to arrest him flew up and back just at his words. And I think that's glanced over and glossed over very often. But what a powerful moment. It wasn't a moment that a weak Savior was led off. It was a moment where he flashed power, what could have been, but he laid it down. It's a dynamic moment in the scene. Another thing that happened at that very, right in that very encounter. uh, So they they get up and they say, you know, who, who, again, who are you seeking? Jesus says, I am he. But then we move on to this other understanding. He said, uh, Jesus said, don't harm the people with me. And they said, no problem. Again, this is the Jim Susser paraphrased edition. And they didn't harm him. And that is a prophetic fulfillment that the people with Jesus wouldn't be harmed. It was prophesied when the Savior came for leading up to that point of, of being taken that he would, his people would not be harmed. That is special, and I think that's often glossed, uh, glossed over. Another thing, another uh, moment in that, in that scene, I guess, uh, was when Jesus makes a reference about a cup of suffering. So Peter is there, and, and after these other things that happen, Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of a servant. Jesus picks up the ear. He heals the servant, um, and as he heals the cut. And he said, Peter, don't take this cup from me. And Jesus is actually referring to a Passover emblem. So right then we see that Jesus is referring to himself very dynamically in, a, in the Passover. And it's a powerful time. And it's a, it's a wonderful connection that we know of. And of course, we know this, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. 
But at that moment, he actually refers to the Passover. And that's a special moment. Uh, and finally, uh, we have a better sense of prophetic fulfillment where things like he had no broken bones as he was taken, which is kind of unique, that he drank vinegar as he's hanging on the cross, that the Romans guarding him gambled for his clothes, uh, uh, and so on and so on. There's a number of other things. Actually, we could spend some time just going over the prophetic experiences that happened. But it all occurred, these things, I should say, occurred when he was first taken and first arrested. So it was this whole night, this whole three-day period where there was amazing event happening after amazing event. And it was all of this sequencing, of course, which culminated, culminated in the crucifixion, which is what we're remembering today. The crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. You know, a lot of people are really good at dying. But there aren't a lot of people that are really good at getting up from the dead. And, uh, and I'm, I'm being a little, you know, saying that somewhat in a silly manner. But we know that Jesus himself got up from the dead. He himself did it as, as God. And he, he, he was dead and he rose from the dead. He didn't have, uh, uh, there weren't people praying for him as in the old covenant or some of the other experiences in the new covenant. But he himself did it. Who can do this? This is amazing. So to me, Resurrection Sunday, or this kind of time of year, this Easter, or however it would be called in homes, I guess, it, what it screams out is, prove it Sunday. I love it about this day. You know, we think of Christmas a lot of times, the birth of the Savior, or we remember other holidays and the things that the Lord did in those holidays. But this is the time, this is the one holiday where it screams out, I proved it. I proved it. This is the prove it holiday. So there's two things just two things this morning that I would like to look at to talk about the proof of the resurrection and just two very simple points, but I think that they'll illustrate much for us. The first is the empty tomb itself. The empty tomb itself. And there's several reasons for this, I, I believe, is a powerful illustration of the proof of the resurrection. First, it was empty. And then we seem somewhat uh, silly, but it was empty. And if we look today, if we had the time, if we were sitting around a big table, first we would be together. But if we're sitting around a big table, we all had internet access, or we were all able to, able to call and interview experts and theologians and scholars and atheists and professors and anybody learned in that point in history, anybody who's truly credible and respectable, or I should say almost everybody truly credible and respectable, they would all say, in fact, the tomb was empty. Even if they don't think that Jesus was the Son of God, they would say the tomb is empty. And there's lots and lots of discussion to this. There was a man named Antony Flew, F-L-E-W, and he uh, was, a, he's passed away now in 2010, but he was a well-known atheist. He was a professor at Oxford University, among others, highly educated, uh, highly intellectual, and very outspoken for intellectual stances for atheism. And he would travel and, and do his presentations, and he's written a number of articles and books, these sorts of things, and very well respected in that community for his stance on atheism. There was a debate, it's interesting, there's a debate between him and a man named Gary Habermas. Um, I believe this was the early 2000s, somewhere around there. Uh, I want to say between 2000 and 2004, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but they go on a debate, and it was in front of a live audience, and there were 
five independent philosophers who were to critique that debate and decide who won the debate based on the merits of the presentation uh, from the view of philosophy. Gary Habermas, by the way, was pro-resurrection, and he's, again, taking on Anthony, or Anthony Flew. So this intellectual, these two intellectuals go at it, and when the debate finished, four of the five independent philosophers gave the win, so to speak, to Gary Habermas. He said they thought he presented a much stronger case. The fifth person, the fifth philosopher, called it a draw. So here Antony Flew, with this high degree of uh, educational pedigree, isn't able to take on and convince a group uh, of independent philosophers of what this is, what's really happening. So we know the empty tomb, and he agreed to this empty tomb, the empty tomb isn't something that there's much disagreement on. So that's one point to the empty tomb that uh, talks and points to the resurrection. Another point of the empty tomb pointing to the resurrection is <clears throat> from the book of Mark. And I know, well, the book of Mark, what does that have to do with the empty tomb? The earliest known source for the book of Mark predates 37 AD. At this point, Jesus would have been dead and resurrected for just a matter of a few years. And this, it predates 37 AD. So we're, we're speaking, it was written, the known writing was written less than four years after the fact. That is remarkable. And historians view that as essential first-hand accord. And again, this is a broad understanding, a broad understanding. Uh, this is not something that just Christian or believing uh, theologians and scholars talk about non-believing scholars will also endorse this as a credible source. Um, the empty tomb it was in Jerusalem. You know, there's a long-term, long-held belief that if, in fact, Jesus was going to rise from the tomb, uh, it, if it was going to be false, I should say, if it was going to be a scam, they wouldn't have done it in Jerusalem. They would have buried him somewhere else in a small community where he would be less known. But Jerusalem, he had made a triumphant entry just recently before. He had done miracles uh, just before. And, of course, he had died just outside of Jerusalem. Everybody knew him. If, he's gonna, if it's a scam and he's going to rise, he's not going to be able to sneak anywhere without being recognized. The disciples and thousands went on uh, to be martyred. Um, they weren't martyred because there was a corpse. They were martyred because there was no corpse. And they were compelled to believe this. And those are some of the reasons in the empty tomb. I, you know, all of these points, I'm just hitting at a very, very high level, and I'm really glancing over. We could spend lots of time talking about the, the evidence from the empty tomb and what it might mean, uh, but there's lots of it. Lots of good evidence, strong evidence in all kinds of layers that show uh, that the tomb, in fact, was empty and it had to be a resurrection. It couldn't simply just be empty. I heard somebody recently say, well, you know, the tomb was empty because they went to the wrong tomb. I think that may be one of the most ridiculous arguments I've heard. We know there were Roman guards at that tomb. They were identifying the tomb. They were saying, this is the tomb. We're guarding the tomb that he's in. They weren't guarding an empty tomb, and we can go on and on. Eh. Second thing, the second thing I want to look at this morning and pointing to the resurrection is simply a passage from the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's a, a number of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with this passage, but the, the body of this passage and the kind of the framework behind this passage say very, very much about the resurrection. 
So I'm just going to read a little bit, 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll stop at several points. uh, And I I want to just draw out uh, some concepts that Paul, the author, is writing to here. And this is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, we'll start. For I deliver to you, Paul, for I, Paul, deliver to you as of first importance. He's screaming, this is so important. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So we stop there and we say, okay, he had to do it in a way, Jesus, when he died and was buried and he rose, he had to do it in a way that fit the framework of what the people at the time were looking for. They didn't have the new covenant. All they had was the understanding of the old covenant, what the Savior was going to be like. And when Jesus is dead, they think, well, this is what we know what the Bible says. And, and, and this, if he's going to be a Savior, he has to come back in this way. He had to die in this way, and he has to come back in this way. This is what Paul's saying. He died according to the Scriptures, according to the way that we knew. That's a big deal. He fit all the criteria of the death and all the criteria of the scriptures of the resurrection. He didn't just wing it. He called his shot and he was very specific in how he would die and how he would rise according to the scriptures. And again, we have these scriptures. We can look back at scriptures. We've got scriptures of some, of some of the parchments that we have today are thousands of years old. In fact, just a few years, uh, Josh McDowell had, uh, had acquired some pieces of scriptures that were actually part of a mummy from the 4th century AD. They were part of a mummy and they were fading ink and the, the papyrus was being repurposed to wrap a mummy. And somebody who discovered the mummy realized that the parchments on the mummy were scriptures. We, it, it was an amazing thing. They pulled them off and they find 4th century versions of these scriptures. So when Jesus had went according to the scriptures, what he was saying is, I understand there's rules and the rules that I'm going to die by and I'm going to rise by are old and I've got to fulfill them. So we read on. Uh, The second point. uh, Oh, I'm sorry. This is verse five. And that he appeared to Cephas. This is, I want to stop here. Cephas is Peter. Cephas is just a Hebrew way of of saying Peter. So he, Jesus appeared to Cephas. Now, this is actually a pretty big deal. If we would read uh, Galatians 1 verse 18, we'll see this verse where Paul goes back. He's explaining his journey into understanding more of the scriptures. And early on, after Paul's conversion, he makes a point of going to spend time and stay with Cephas. So as he's with Cephas, the Bible, a lot of new translations use the word visit. Paul went to visit Cephas. But that word visit actually comes from the original Greek word histor- historico. Historico? Historico sounds maybe a little bit nicer. So he, he, he's doing a historical search. He's on a quest. He's really looking for details and for answers. So when Paul's talking to Cephas, he's saying, okay, give me the facts. I want the facts. I want to lay them out. And I want to really process what we're going over. And that's the way Paul approached it. So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, these are the, Paul went to, uh, when Paul is, ta- I'm sorry, Paul is write, he's writing in 1 Corinthians 15, he's saying, Cephas, or Peter, this is what he told me. When I was, when I was on my, my search, 
and my quest for information and my quest for accuracy and understanding what went on and understanding the, the framework and the parameters and what, what is and what isn't. When I was on my quest and I myself talked to Cephas in, first, in Galatians 1, this is what he said. And he observed Jesus, the risen Jesus. So I use a very broad description to, to connect just simply to say, Paul wasn't just making up this, this, this appearance between Jesus and Cephas. He had actually spent time with Cephas getting the details. So, uh, he, he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas. And then to these other people. You know, it's kind of fun to just look at some of the other people that Jesus appeared to. He appeared to uh, a, more than a group of ten of disciples and others in John chapter 20 to a group of seven of disciples in John chapter 21 to 11 disciples in Luke chapter 11 to two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 um, to the disciples group in Matthew 28, 28 where, where the great commission, he's got all the disciples there and he, Jesus of course has his epic message and he talks about the great commission, go tell people, make disciples of people in all nations. Uh, we know in Acts 1 that there's a whole crowd looking on and Peter stands up and, or I'm sorry, Jesus is there and he tells everybody, eat all these people, see him as he ascends into heaven. In Acts 2 and in Acts 3, in two different moments, Peter stands up and uh, one in a big crowd, one when he's sharing faith with somebody outside the temple and he's saying, I saw the risen Jesus. And uh, it's a big scene and big going on. Acts 13, Paul preaches, uh, big, well-known passage, well-known sermon about Jesus being risen and the many witnesses of it. So when he's, you know, we see, we know that Jesus meets with Cephas after the resurrection, but he also meets with all of these other people. So many people saw Jesus after the resurrection. And of course, in Acts 15, it goes on. Uh, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. All right, this is where we stop. And we say, if this was a scam, if he didn't rise, these people would have been upset that he was misrepresenting them. He, they would be, he would be making up erroneous statements on their behalf. If he said, Cephas said he rose. If Cephas didn't say it, and Cephas heard about this, he would be very upset. If there's 500 people in a room, and Paul says the 500 people saw Jesus, if that would, in fact wasn't the case, they would have been 500 very upset people saying, hey, don't pull me into your stories and your lies your treachery, but that's not what happened. These people, he lists them. If I'm talking to somebody, if I'm with you and we observe a car accident together, I can go back and I can say to the police officer, my friend also saw. But if I go to a police officer and I say, I witnessed a car accident and my friend did too, uh, over there, it was over there, some other place. If there was, in fact, no car accident and I pulled you into a fake story, you'd be very angry. For Paul to make this, this, uh, this declaration of these people, he had to be sure. He had to be sure and to know that they, in fact, saw Jesus. And we see no anger, even from the historians that write at the time. Uh, Pliny the Younger talks about some of the things that he observed from his early group of believers. Pliny the Younger didn't even like Jesus. And he's, he's supporting what Paul's saying, that there was all of these witnesses and all these observers that, uh, that knew of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is a highly compelling, highly compelling document 
to prove that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. One of the thought about that, it's the oldest known writing in the New Covenant. And so it actually predates the book of Mark, which is already one of the oldest. It's the oldest known gospel in the New Covenant. If we look at 1 Corinthians and the, and the piece and the portions that we found of that, it actually predates what we read in Mark. So I, th- I think the evidence of the resurrection is all over. It's big. It's so big. Powerful. So here's what, here's what we have on Prove It Sunday. On the Sunday where Jesus called this shot, he's, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise, and he did it. What does that tell us? First, it tell us, tells us that Jesus' resurrection works also for us. Not just for him, but also works for us. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, so just later in that chapter from, verse, uh, from the verses that we read in 1 Corinthians, uh, there's a great passage. Paul says, if Christ was not risen, then we're preaching in vain. But because he rose, we know there's merit to what he's saying. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. He did this for us. And because he did this, we can do this. Another, another value in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-22. Uh, the point here in this passage, Christ indeed, the passage goes on to say Christ has indeed but raised from the dead. So with Christ, we will all be raised alive, which is similar to what I had said before. The point here uh, is, it, <clears throat> is it because, again, because Jesus died and rose, we will rise. We're going to see people in heaven that we want to see very much. I'm sure that many of us have loved ones and friends that are in heaven. We talk, you know, any believer who's been believing for a while is, I'm sure had a conversation, when I get to heaven, someday I'll ask whatever. Um, Someday I'll ask, uh, so Jesus, what was the most annoying thing that you found on the earth? Or, so Jesus, you know, what do you think about this? Or, Moses... Really? How long was your beard? Or, you know, whatever. Whatever comes to mind. We're going to want to know these things. And we're going to get there. And I, there's people I look forward to seeing in heaven. And I know I'm going to get there. I know it. We serve a risen Lord. I'm going to rise. You're going to rise. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And it validates everything that he said he was going to do. So here we are in this era of coronavirus. This is interesting. So there's a fear element, certainly, to coronavirus. We know about this. Some of you might be really dealing with some challenges yourself on having a peaceful home and and moving, migrating from the surviving mentality to the thriving mentality. You know, back at that time, when, if we look at, at John's account of the resurrection and how it went down, I think there's a wonderful parallel for us today. So, of course, in the third day, Mary had gone out to the tomb uh, she doesn't see anybody at the tomb. It's empty. She goes back. She tells Peter uh, and, and another fella. They run out. They look at the tomb. We believe it's John. We, they run at the tomb and they, they look. It's empty. And they believe then what she said. They didn't believe that he was risen. They believe, believed that he w- it was empty. Or maybe they believe that he was risen. We can go either way on this. They go back to the house. Uh, Mary, she stays at the tomb and she sees, she gets a visitation from an angel. 
and the angel says he's risen, and she sees the, it's just a wonderful thing. She goes back to the house to tell the disciples, Peter, who, she, who had seen the empty tomb, and they're locked behind doors. Now, Mary knows that he's risen, and they're still locked behind doors because they're afraid of the Jews. They were told that their Savior is not dead. They were told that their Savior is risen, and they still lock their doors for fear from the Jews. In this coronavirus world of ours, we know our Lord is risen. We know He's not dead. And as He's not going to, as He didn't stay dead, we're not going to stay dead. We don't have to live behind locked doors. He's risen. We're going to rise. This is amazing. This is wonderful. This brings hope. This brings peace. I mean, real peace. If we didn't have a, resurrect, a resurrected Lord, if we didn't have a risen Lord, this whole thing would be a boondoggle. It'd be a scam, a sham. Thank God for a risen Lord. Thank God for the guarantees in the risen Lord. You know, if you're in a place in your life and you've not thought much about the risen Lord and you've not thought much about the promises of the risen Lord, think about it now. Even today, when you turn this off, or even pause it now. If you're not sure where you sit with the Lord, reestablish your walk with the Lord. Lord, I know you've risen. Tell him this. Lord, I know you've risen. And I reaffirm. And I grab onto the fact that you're risen. As you've risen, I'll rise. And as you validated the words in the scripture, I'll cling to the words that you validated. I'll take them on. I'll live those words. One thing to consider today, try having communion. Do it in your home. Grab an emblem, uh, emblem for the juice, an emblem for the bread, and try it in your home. Remember what he did when he shed his blood. Remember the fact that what he did when he broke his body. But also celebrate the fact that he's risen because it's the rising that validated those other things. Otherwise, he would have just been a dead man. He would have been a man who bled and a man who was crucified. But he validated it. Thank God that we have a validated uh, Lord. So today, this is, for me, maybe one of my most faith-building days of the year. Every year, every year, when I think of the Resurrection Day, truly, I think of the validation of our Lord. I think of the proving it day. He called this shot. I think of the historians, even the ones that don't understand I think of them coming around and reading and learning and yearning and searching to know what's true. I mentioned Antony Flew in the beginning and this debate that he had had with Gary Habermas, the believer, both, both professors, just before he died, so just after this uh, debate, Antony Flew changed his stance from atheist to deist. He realized that there was an intelligent design, there had to be a creator. So here is this learned man who spends more than 50 years in academia, 50 years as an atheist, I mean more than 50 years. He was roughly uh, almost 80 years old when he became a believer, or uh, we'll say a deist. No one's quite sure where he stands with God, but the proof of the resurrection stood out to him. We serve a validated Lord, and the proof of the resurrection stands out to us too. We thank God for that. I thank God for you. I'm looking forward to the time that we get to worship together. 
Spend some time today declaring, re-declaring in your own quiet time, declaring your relationship and your belief and your stance in the Lord. Be assured that he rose. Reach out to each other, call each other, text each other, FaceTime, Skype, whatever you do. Stay in contact. We need each other. And we look forward to today being together. You know, it's, it's different to think of Paul's letters when he would, uh, from the perspective that we have today. All those times where Paul would say, I long to be with you. I'm looking forward to being with you. He would write these church in this area, this church in that area. And he would say, I would long to be with you. And I feel the same way. Hey, everybody. Hey, community. I long to be with you. And I'm looking forward to these days. But on this day, we remember that it was people in their homes that understood the validation of the Savior when he rose. So, amen. Be blessed. We're looking forward to more worship. Get ready and really, you know, worship. This is a good day to think and be mindful of the great victory that we have in a risen Jesus. Amen. Happy Resurrection Day. Thank you again for downloading and listening to this message from Grace Christian Fellowship. We are located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And if you are looking for a church to call home or would like to visit us for one of our services, please visit our site at gracecf.us for our location and service times. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.